Hello, and welcome to the Commander Theory Podcast. I'm Nick Beatman, and I'm here with my friend, Zach Mack. Hello, everybody. Today's episode is going to be a little bit more theoretical, as we're going to be exploring a hypothetical change to the format that might shake up how decks are built and what archetypes are available. To cover this topic, we have with us Alex Whiteclay, aka Commander Manifesto, which is a fantastic blog with excellent commander analysis. Alex, uh, we're pleased to have you here. Can you tell us a little bit about this hypothetical change to the format? I certainly can, and uh, thanks for having me on. In Commander, uh, the color identity rule is implemented by three rules in the comprehensive rulebook. So there's rule 903.5c, which states that the color identity of cards in your deck must be properly contained by the color identity of your commander. There's 903.5d, which restricts you to lands with basic land types of your commander's color identity. So like if your commander is black, blue, you can run swamps and islands. And then finally, 903.11, which deals with uh, bringing cards from outside the game. So there are three parts of that rule. One, you can't bring in a card from outside the game that you've already brought in. You can't bring in a card that's already in your deck. And you can't bring in a card that is of an improper color identity. So the hypothetical that we'll be looking at today is what if we replaced those three rules, uh, the color identity of your cards, the land types, and bringing in cards of other color identities, and replaced it with a new rule, uh, 903.12, we'll call it, which reads, if a player would add mana of a color that is not included in the color identity of that player's commander, that player adds no mana instead. So kind of going back to the pre-Oath of the Gatewatch, you can't add mana of the wrong color, but even more, like it doesn't even become colorless, you just can't add it at all. Yeah, this It's pretty reminiscent of... Yeah, of that time period, except I think the one difference is that it was just colorless back then, right? Yes, yeah. That, that, that would, was the big difference. Mm-hmm. Whereas this would be if your white deck attempted to add green mana, uh, you wouldn't produce any mana. So you could run a forest. There's no rule against running a forest. But if you did and you tapped it for mana, it just wouldn't produce mana. So the restriction then would just kind of be on how you build your deck rather than a hard rule about how you can build your deck. So it's my understanding that this change would make it so that you could run hybrid cards that are half in your commander's color identity, or or actually you could run, uh, not only that, you could just run any card from outside your color, your commander's color identity. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, that's accurate. So your red deck could run a blue card um and you know you wouldn't be able to produce the mana to cast that blue card so you'd have to come up with some other way to make that useful to you but if you could figure out a way to do that or maybe you know if your commander had a way to do that for you then you could brew around cards that aren't in your color identity so uh tell me why you're you're interested in exploring this hypothetical what what led you to uh, bring up this topic? So I guess it it shouldn't come as a surprise uh, with a blog with a title like Commander Manifesto. Uh, I am a 
partisan on many features of the commander format. And one of the things that I'm a partisan regarding is the state of the hybrid mana rules. So on the FAQ uh, for the rules committee, there is an item, why does hybrid mana work the way it does? So in their explanation of why the hybrid mana rule works the way it does, and for those who aren't aware, currently the rule is if you have a hybrid card, it counts as both of the colors. So if you have a white-black hybrid card, you can't play that in a deck that doesn't have both white and black in its color identity. The reason that the rules committee gives for this is they, quote, the rules committee feels that relaxing the definition of color identity to allow hybrid to ignore a symbol on the card would make the rule more complex and decrease deck diversity for very little gain. And they state also, they do not expect the definition of color identity to ever change. Uh, the reason they do this, they say, is the decision was made to make color identity more strict than color to restrict the card pool and encourage diversity in deck building. So, well, I guess I'll pose to you, if we trade out one rule for three, have we made the rules more complex or less complex? Yeah, it doesn't even require an answer. It's pretty obvious, yeah. <laughs> then the idea here is that we would be exploring whether, in fact, deck diversity increases or, as the Rules Committee worries it would, decreases. And if there is actually very little to gain or if there is something interesting to be gained. I think it, it really looks at like what hybrid rules can do for the format, like hybrid, allowing hybrid can do for the format, but also just goes further. And I think like a lot of the uh, decks that we're about to talk about kind of highlight some really cool, weird things that a lot of these cards could like add to the format that aren't really getting played right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I completely agree. You know, going into this, it was hard to have an expectation of what we would get out of this. But I think as we'll be exploring, there would be changes to the format. We'll have to conclude at the end of all this, whether we gained or lost on the way. Yes. Yes. So uh, I guess where do we want to start? Where, how, how do we want to get this going? Well, I think we can go, we can begin with talking about the archetypes that are most likely to benefit from this change and, and maybe go into some specific decks that'll really benefit from this change. And then we can pull back a little bit and talk about general changes to deck building that would likely occur as a result of this change. So what are some of the archetypes most likely to benefit from this, Alex? So the two deck archetypes that I, I've kind of identified as gaining a lot would be Reanimator, which, you know, those of us who remember the kitchen table days will fondly regard uh, cheating in big dumb beaters very early. Um, and then the second archetype is what I would kind of call show and tell, uh, but more generally includes any kind of cheating things into play, tutoring things directly onto the battlefield, kind of getting around the process of casting the cards. Well, let's let's start with Reanimator. What are some of the reanimator decks that are going to benefit the most from this change and what would those new decks look like under this new paradigm we all are familiar with reanimator in commander to an extent right so there are decks like uh Carador, alesha um where they're recurring things for value over the course of the long game 
So I would see the kinds of reanimator decks that are likely to see a big bump are the commanders that incentivize not value reanimation, but like beef reanimation, for lack of a better yeah. term. <laughs> mm -hmm. So big, big boy reanimation. Yeah. So to give an example, um, I put together a whisper blood liturgist list, which essentially it opens you up from mono black and artifact reanimate targets and Eldrazi and things like that to reanimate targets of all five colors. So you can get back, you know, your Avacyns, you can get back Jin Gitaxius, kind of haymaker creatures well ahead of schedule, but regardless of color. And again, this is going to be reminiscent of that kind of kitchen table, turn one in tomb, turn two reanimate kind of gameplay. Yeah, I've always been a little sad that commander reanimator decks don't really or aren't really able to make use of the same strategy that 60 card reanimator decks do, which is basically spending cards in order to get a huge windfall on mana. So like the the types of decks that go turn one and tomb, turn two, reanimate or animate dead, really what they're doing is is saving, you know, eight or nine mana on their enormous reanimation target. But that's typically not how it works in Commander, in part because there just aren't enough really expensive creatures in most of the color identities of popular reanimation commanders. Right. And the other thing, too, is if you're relying on a single large creature to be your kind of entire game plan, it needs to really matter. And it's hard to find a color where you have enough creatures that can conceivably like bring you to the winner's circle on their own in any color identity. With this Whisper list, uh, my partner has a Joda Archmage Journal deck where the idea is, you know, you play J Joda on turn four, on turn five, you pay five and cast a Haymaker. And a lot of the same creatures that can carry the game on their own are the same sorts of things that this Whisper deck is trying to reanimate. So it kind of has you on that similar timetable, but is doing it in a distinct way. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the, the big boom booms that you're able to run in Whisper? What has been doing the most work for you in this new list without color identity restrictions? The one that I am always most excited to use is Grozoth. Uh, but I, I just, I have a thing about Grozoth. Um, some of the ones that are particularly interesting, kind of outside of kind of a pet card like that, uh, Rhea Dawnbringer, which is a nine mana white creature um, that has at the beginning of your upkeep, you may return target creature card from your graveyard to the battlefield, uh, which allows you to, you know, take a creature that you can discard, you reanimate Rhea, and then you discard some other beater, such as, say, Grozoth or like a Blazing Archon, an Avacyn. Apex Altasaur, that you then are flying in with Rhea and whatever other beaters you had in hand. Uh, things like the Ur-Dragon uh, put down a pretty short clock and also guarantee you card advantage. Obviously, Eldrazi are still fine targets, so Pathraiser of Ulamog, It the Betrays, uh, fine reanimation targets, uh, as they would have been even in the classically mono-black version of Whisper. Nice. So it sounds like this new color identity is adding a lot of power to the deck. In addition to reanimation targets, are there any other cards outside your commander's color identity that you're using to further your game plan? Or is it primarily just these reanimation targets? Actually, there, there's not too many. So other decks that we'll be talking about later um, use a lot more. With Whisper, 
I saw an opportunity to run uh, Luris uh, in the 99. Since the deck relies on a lot of low CMC creatures that have discard effects kind of tacked onto them, and you're going to be sacrificing those cheap creatures, the opportunity to play them again, get another opportunity to discard uh, an expensive creature, just seemed like a good opportunity to uh, kind of test the card out. But another inclusion that actually kind of promises to be a pretty big change to the format overall is this deck is running all four of the talismans that give black and another color. So for example, uh, it's running Talisman of Dominance, which is two mana for an artifact that has tap, add colorless, or tap, add blue or black Talisman of Dominance deals one damage to you. Um, it's running all four since you're trying to get to turn four to cast Whisper as early as reasonably possible. So having more ramp spells at two mana promises to get you there with a lot more consistency. Yeah, that's actually, I mean, four mana commanders is kind of like the sweet spot that I found, like one one of the sweet spots. And one of the reasons that they're so strong is because you can run those two mana at tap for one rocks and get your commander pretty consistently a turn early and just start doing your thing. And Whisper really just having a tap ability really wants that. So I really do think that that's a pretty, pretty hefty addition being even more consistent in getting your commander down on turn three is a pretty big deal. I definitely agree. And the other um, point here to make is, theoretically, I could be running all 10 talismans. Um, I only chose to run the ones that could make black on the off chance, you know, whatever other sources of mana I drew into didn't have the ability to produce black between them. But you yeah. could be running, you know, the white red talisman and just use it to be producing colorless mana and since whisper is three generic and a black that's still likely to help you get her out early i just opted to go in a different direction yeah so that, i think that just about sums it up for whisper but whisper is definitely not the only deck that has kind of a classical reanimator bent to it maybe you guys have a deck that you would like to share in kind of that same vein yeah, one that I'd like really like to highlight is Felden of the Third Path. So Felden of the Third Path is one red red for a 2-3 human artificer. He has two red tap, put a token onto the battlefield that's a copy of target creature card in your graveyard, except it's an artifact in addition to its other types. It gains haste, sacrifice it at the beginning of the next end step. So one of the crucial differences between a Felden reanimation strategy and a Whisper strategy is that Whisper... She just she gets things onto the battlefield permanently, so you can get more sort of long game value. You can have like your Reyes and your Shield Reds and other cards that take a couple turns to really generate value for you. Whereas with Felden, because it's going to get sacrificed at the beginning of the next end step, you really have to run cards that will get you benefit that turn only. So enter the battlefield effects, attack triggers, combat damage triggers are a lot more important for this archetype and uh, there's a lot of cards there's a little bit of overlap between whisper but a lot of the cards that it's running are, are very different so similarly to whisper it's running apex altasaur um, it's running jinkataxius core auger although it's definitely not able to get the jinkataxius full value you can really only choose uh, do i want to get the seven cards or do i want somebody to discard their hand um, but other things that work really well in a felden deck 
are things like Kuro Pitlord is one that I've always been a big fan of. Um, six black, black, black for a nine, nine legendary demon spirit. At the beginning of your upkeep, sacrifice it unless you pay black, 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 black. And you can pay one life to give target creature minus one, minus one until end of turn. So if you're bringing that back with Felden, you're, you don't really have to worry about paying the upkeep cost. And it's just you're cracking for nine and you can pay a bunch of life and clear the, your opponent's side of the board of creatures. Similarly, um, there's also Dismember is another card that gets added to this this deck's repertoire of kill spells. Mono Red has typically not had great spot removal for creatures. Um, so Dismember is a card that would likely make its way into this deck just by virtue of being a one mana give target creature minus five, minus five, and that'll likely handle a lot of the, the major threats you're facing down. One thing I like about Felden is that um, because you're in red and because lately we've gotten so many good discard spells, sort of like Tormenting Voice, uh, Cathartic Reunion, Thrill of Possibility over the last couple of years, there's a lot of ways to easily get things out of, that you can't cast out of your hand and into your graveyard. So it's really easy to set up Felden, even with you know these cards that there's no way in hell you're going to be able to cast. If I can make a point, I notice the list has Sire of Insanity and Nickel Bloss, the original, um, which mm-hmm. are both sort of famously uh, haymakers that are the kind you would see in, say, like a four or five color deck that's just looking to shut down your opponents entirely. And it's it's kind of nice, I guess, to see a mono red deck finally kind of be able to hit with that kind of oomph rather than just having to rely on Mer Battlesphere uh, to go in for lethal, you know, as it has been for years and years with kind of big red lists. Definitely. Uh, it's a lot of uh, red decks over the years have had to rely on mass land destruction when they really want to win. So it's great to see that this uh, this change to the rules would give them a little bit more power without having to to cross that line for a lot of playgroups to they don't you don't have to pursue anti-social ends uh, you can just like knock out the control player's hand with a nickel bolus or make everyone discard their answers but still have you know not remove their ability to play magic right they can still they can still top deck the out yeah so uh one one last card i, I want to highlight in this list uh that i think is is very powerful and we'll touch on this more later when we talk a little bit more about the phyrexian mana spells and their effect on the format but birthing pod is fantastic in this list uh because your cards are going away at end of turn your or the your token copies are going away at end of turn it's, there's really no cost to feeding them into the birthing pod, and then you can go ahead and uh, pull out other cards that you might want to get onto the battlefield, and if they die, then they're just more fodder for Felden to bring back. So the mention of birthing pod um, sort of transitions nicely to another deck that uh, I put together for this. Alesha Who Smiles at Death actually does still gain something from this, right? Because unlike Carador, Alesha doesn't cast the things that are being reanimated. Um, they just get pulled back uh, by her triggered ability. And so conceivably, what you can do is kind of take the way that a lot of Alesha decks close out the game already, which is your Felidar Guardian Kiki-Jiki combo, and add in all the other creatures with two power that Kiki-Jiki can get back. And so I put together a list that also leverages Birthing Pod in kind of the same 
vein is the uh, Felden deck, where you really just don't care if the thing is dead and you, you, you're getting value either way. It makes the deck kind of more focused on that combo line um, rather than being the more controlling version that most of us would probably be familiar with. I like that a lot. That's a really innovative way to look at Alesha. I know that there's a lot of Alesha builds out there, but it seems like this change would give you even more ways to play with this as a commander. Yeah, and that's sort of the thing, right, is you could conceivably build the deck such that you could cast everything in your new deck still. Like, it's not as though an Alesha deck that is being built with the rules that currently exist would suddenly become illegal with this change. All that's really changing here is that you would have the opportunity to use other cards if you so desired. I think this deck list is an interesting kind of case study of that. I definitely think that's true. I think that there would be like some pretty cool tech that people would dig up just like as people were building these lists and like looking at Alesha through like a lens like this. I think there would be some pretty interesting things that would get picked up that right now just no one is looking for or looking at. All right. Uh, if you have no objections, I'd like to move on to one last reanimator list that I was hoping we'd be able to discuss today. Let's. So this is Iname Death Aspect. So Iname is four black black for a four four legendary spirit. When she enters the battlefield, you may search your library for any number of spirit cards and put them into your graveyard. If you do, shuffle your library. So... This deck has typically been a combo slash control list. Uh, there is combo potential in terms of reanimating your entire graveyard at once. But if for whatever reason that fails, there's a lot of controlling spirits in mono black that you can use to limit your opponent's ability to play the game. There some really powerful options get opened up for you with the addition of extra colors. Because Aname tutors things directly into the graveyard and because there's so many strong reanimation options available in mono black you don't really have to cast most of your spirits anyway so there's very little uh cost to running many of these cards so for example yose the morning star fits into a lot of your reanimation engines pretty easily when it dies target player skips his or her next untap step and you can tap up to five target permanents that player controls so if you feed that into a reanimation engine with say dawn of the dead or or anything similar, you can keep somebody locked down and that'll make it very difficult for them to play the game. Uh, on, on some of the more pro-social ends, uh, there's also uh, Godhead of Awe, which is five mana, hybrid white-blue, hybrid white-blue, hybrid white-blue, hybrid white-blue, hybrid white-blue. <laughs> for a, a Yeah, for a 4-4 spirit avatar with flying, other creatures are 1-1. One, one. So one of the staples of an Iname deck is um, the Krovican Horror combo with some of the Sack Fodder spirits that are available. So Krovican Horror, if it's in your graveyard with a creature card directly above it, you can return it to your hand at the beginning of any end step. And then also has the ability to sacrifice a creature and deal one damage to a creature or player. So you're going to naturally be able to recur this card, and there's some self-recurring spirits that you can dump into your graveyard like Bloodgast or Nether Trader. And uh, in combination with Godhead of Awe, all your opponent's creatures are 1-1, and you can ping them down really easily with these self-recurring creatures. Some some really powerful options. There's also Hakori, the Dust Drinker, who, which is essentially a winter orb. Lands don't untap during their controller's untap steps, and at the beginning of each player's upkeep, that player untaps a land he or she controls. So you can also just 
get Hokori onto the battlefield and then sacrifice it before your untap step so that your opponent's lands are locked down and yours are not. So a lot of really powerful, interesting options opened up for Iname as a result of this change. Yeah, sort of cranks that control element up to 11, it looks like. Yeah. I guess one more question about the list. Um, I'm seeing here you've got, what, about seven off-color spirits that you're looking to put in your graveyard. What kind of effects did you replace from, say, the mono-black version of this deck to find space for those? So the original version of the deck, you definitely want to keep your spirit count relatively high. One of the combo ways that this deck can win is through the card um, Mortal Kombat, which is two black-black enchantment. At the beginning of your upkeep, if 20 or more creature cards are in your graveyard, you win the game. So you want your spirit count high enough that uh, you can get enough spirits into your graveyard to trigger Mortal Kombat and win that way. So that means that normally, after you get past the first 10 or so, you're kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel for these mono black spirits. So to open that up, um, there, there's plenty of spirits that are easily cut that are just not intrinsically very powerful that you're running in order to meet that Mortal Kombat condition. So it was things like uh, Keening Banshee or Xenic Poltergeist or things that are slow or not particularly impactful. Okay, so sort of the kinds of cards that uh, Puskami comes just ahead of. Yes, pretty much. All right. Uh, moving on to... The second category uh, of decks that get a big boost from this change are the show-and-tell or kind of tutoring things into play uh, kinds of decks. And I guess I see this as being maybe the, the biggest pressure point of the rules change, right? So these are the kinds of places where commanders that tutor are already very powerful and opening up their tutoring potential to cards of any color uh, potentially could result in a pretty big uh, shift to their power level. So I put together a couple of lists, and I'm by no means a competitive EDH or CEDH aficionado, uh, but put a couple lists together that are kind of in that vein, even if they maybe get a few of the subtleties a little wrong. So the first one to talk about here might be the less um, egregious of the two, which would be Kaho, Minimo Historian. For those who aren't familiar, is two blue blue for a 2-2 human wizard. When Kaho enters the battlefield, search your library for up to three instant cards and exile them. Then shuffle your library. Then it has an activated ability, X, tap. You may... Uh, cast a card with converted mana cost X, exiled with Kaho without paying its mana cost. So the idea here is relatively simple. This this list um, doesn't run too many cards that are off color, but the one card that it does run that is off color matters quite a lot, and that card is Ad Nauseum, which again for those unfamiliar is black black three for an instant. Reveal the top card of your library and put that card into your hand. You lose life equal to its converted mana cost. You may repeat this process any number of times. So for anyone who's familiar with uh, CEDH, you are going to immediately know what Ad Nauseam does. Essentially, you are going to pay most of your life to put most or a great deal of your library in your hand and then combo or storm off from there. So with this Kaho list, you 
cast Caho, you get your ad nauseum, you get a high tide, uh, and then the turn after Caho, you ad nauseum, and the turn after that, you high tide and combo off. Aside from that sort of one piece of uh, off-color action, the deck runs uh, the blue talismans again, because Caho costs four, that more reliably gets you to that magic number a turn early. And then it runs a single piece of off-color interaction in the form of deflecting SWAT, which uh, is new as of Commander 2020. I really, really like the addition of deflecting SWAT here. And I, th I think when we talk about uh, changes to the format as a whole, I think we're going to be talking a fair bit about these free spells and what they might mean for, for the format. Yeah, that's absolutely true. The deck also runs Fierce Guardianship, which isn't off-color, but as we'll discuss in a moment, uh, Fierce Guardianship becomes probably ubiquitous uh, among decks that are trying to stay at that bleeding edge. I really like this list and I like this hypothetical list because I think you reading Kaho is the first time a lot of listeners might have ever experienced this card in any form <laughs> just she's like not played at all really in any play group that i've seen and on the topic of kaho archetypes the only one that i'm really all that familiar with other than you know this one which doesn't really formally exist is you go and tutor up a, a polymorph effect and then you just polymorph kaho into whatever it was you were polymorphing into yeah whereas this kind of puts you more in the high tide uh, that you might see like a Jace Friends Prodigy or something uh, being at the at the head of. And I think that that is interesting. I think as more mono blue commanders come out and more mono blue commanders, let's say uh, Fibblethip uh, being the last one, we kind of have been realizing collectively as a community that a lot of mono blue commanders are just polymorph commanders. I think Fibblethip <laughs> was the, the last iteration of that. Uh, I think giving them a little bit more to do than just polymorphing might be a might might benefit a few of these blue guys. Yeah, no objections here. So I looked it up on EDH Rec and Kaho Minaho Minamo Historian is uh it's just outside of the top five hundred decks. So uh pretty ranked fairly low, only 106 decks on EDH Rec. So it would be great to see this change uh give a lot of juice to this fairly neglected commander. Moving on to what I've been alluding to up till now is what's probably the worst case scenario uh, for this change. Um, it's a Yisan the Wandering Bard list. And Yisan the Wanderer Bard is uh, two and green for a two, three human rogue. It has two green tap, put a verse counter on Yisan the Wanderer Bard. Search your library for a creature card with converted mana cost equal to the number of verse counters on Yisan, put it onto the battlefield, then shuffle your library. And in putting together this list, this was the stress test uh, for what could go wrong with this format. The main win condition of the deck is a Hermit Druid combo, where Hermit Druid uh, is a two mana creature that has you pay one and tap it, and you reveal cards from the top of your library until you reveal a basic land. You put the basic land in your hand and put every other revealed card in your graveyard. So uh, a fairly well-known combo. If you don't have any basic lands in your deck, you reveal your entire library and then put your library in the graveyard. 
And with your library in your graveyard, there's lots of things you can do. But the thing that this deck does is you use your geese on, uh, you use whatever creature you tutored up with one verse counter, and then the hermit druid that you tutored up with two verse counters to pay the flashback cost of dread return, which then returns Thassa's Oracle from the graveyard to the battlefield. Thassa's Oracle sees an empty library and you win the game. Um, so with a turn one ramp spell, uh, which this deck has a lot of, you can cast Yeeson on turn two. Uh, on turn three, you can tutor up one of two uh, red one mana creatures that have tap target creature gains haste until end of turn. And then on turn three, you tutor up the Hermit Druid, give it haste, and then uh, activate it and uh, Dread Return Thassa's Oracle to the battlefield. So almost every game, it will Goldfish a win on turn four. Uh, in order to do this, the deck can't run any basic lands, which is going to be a real challenge for Mono Green, but it is possible because with the abolition of the basic land restriction, um, we can run uh, dual lands and shock lands in our mono green deck and just use their activated ability that was granted to them for being a forest uh, with duels and shocks and fetch lands to get them as well as uh, pain lands like Lanawar Wastes and some fast lands like Razor, Razor Verge Thicket uh, we can have a mana base that is completely non-basic that still has a very high density of green activations that don't enter the battlefield tapped. I, I really like the addition of the horizon lands to this deck or the on-color horizon lands. I take it that those are there to help you trigger Lab Maniac if you decide to go that route? Yeah, so you, as you noticed, there is a plan B for the deck. The plan B is Lab Maniac. The plan C is just to do what Yusan decks are already doing in competitive circles, uh, which is a fairly convoluted combo uh, involving Timur Sabretooth. Um, but you get uh, Horizon Lands, as you said, um, which can allow you to draw a card uh, to activate the Labman. The other thing that you can do with Labman is just tutor him up during your upkeep um, and then immediately move to your draw step uh, if something happens to your Thassa's Oracle or your Dread Return or some part of that combo. Hmm. Um, and then the other point to make, I guess, is like all of the decks in this vein, you are often just going to have to plan around the fact that you draw one of your combo pieces. Um, since Yusan doesn't help you at all, if your if your combo is in your hand, you just kind of have to roll with it if you, you know, keep a hand and draw Thassa's Oracle on turn one, which is why it's important to have that plan B in place. But like I said, I, I see this Yisan deck as kind of pulling out all the stops. So it runs um, some of the more powerful hybrid cards that I, I would say a lot of advocates uh, against a change to the rule kind of point to. So Vexing Shusher, which is a, a hybrid red or green 2-2 uh, for two that has red or green target spell can't be countered by spells or abilities, and it itself cannot be countered. So it creates um, very difficult counterplay for uh, decks that rely on counter spells or answers. Mm -hmm. It also runs Deathrite Shaman as an additional uh, source of ramp 
since as a green deck, it can cast it uh, and you just won't have access to its black activated ability. It runs Cataxian Probe as kind of famously uh, decks that are trying to combo off early often like to do so with the knowledge of what interaction their opponents are keeping up. And since you can pay the two life, you will gladly do that just to make sure you're not walking into removal. And then finally, one that probably wouldn't stay in a perfectly tuned list, but I thought was cute, um, is Hex Parasite, which is a artifact creature with a black Phyrexian mana activation, where for X and a Phyrexian black, it can remove up to X counters from target permanent. For each counter removed this way, Hex Parasite gets plus one, plus zero until end of turn, which would allow you to put Yis on further back uh, in the verse counter count. So if you shoot past what you need to be at, you can use Hex Parasite to uh, move further back. One last kind of related point, the deck runs several pieces of off-color interaction that will typically be free. So there's Mental Misstep, uh, which is a Phyrexian mana counterspell, Furious Guardianship, and Deflecting Swat, uh, which can keep spot removal off of your commander, and then Flawless Maneuver, which is also part of that cycle to make uh, your creatures indestructible. So by giving you access to some of the, I guess you'd call them quote-unquote free counterspells, it kind of puts a mono green deck um, in that same sort of cheap to free interaction zone that uh, allows mono blue decks to do very well at the highest levels of commander. Yeah, well, this is a, a really fascinating list and just goes to show how the current color identity restrictions can in some ways put a check on uh, on CEDH and what would likely happen. Do you think that some of the innovations used by this deck would be adopted by other highly competitive lists? So I have a hard time seeing a world where um, Mental Misstep, Fierce Guardianship, Flawless Maneuver, and Deflecting Swat don't see fairly extensive adoption. Um, They, again, are that free interaction that allows, well, colors that can't really interact with the stack all that well. Uh, They give it the ability to do so at the same rate that blue does, which is free or at least free when it matters the most. Aside from that, Vexing Shusher and Deathrite Shaman presumably will see a lot of adoption as well. Um, Vexing Shusher is sort of notorious for how effectively it puts a damper on counter spells, And it's often cited that its color identity is what keeps it in check, but you know it's hard to say without a whole format of people testing that out. Um, Deathrite Shaman, of course, is another one-mana um, mana dork and no one's going to turn that down yeah i agree so uh we're gonna just briefly mention a few specific archetypes that uh don't really fall under these broader broader categories that we've been talking about the reanimator and the the show and tell decks these are just commanders that are just generally able to make use of some some new tech or some new category of card as a result of this change to color identity rules I guess I'll start it off with talking about Aminatu, the Fate Shifter, Brago King Eternal, Yurion Sky Nomad. All of these are blink commanders that can target your things, exile them, return them to the battlefield. And what um, makes them unique here is there's ways to get things into the battle 
onto the battlefield in these colors as face down creatures. You can you're able to manifest uh, off color cards and then blink them with your Minatu, Brago, or Yorion, and then get them onto the battlefield without ever being able to produce the mana required to cast them. So that's a an innovative use of this change to the color identity rules. What other commanders do you think would have significant changes as a result of this modification to color identity? So in a similar vein, um, Ixidor, Reality Sculptor, which, oh goodness, it's been a long time since I've looked at Ixidor. So Ixidor is blue, blue, three, four, three, four, human wizard. Face down creatures get plus one, plus one, blue, two, turn target face down creature face up. So much like you can manifest uh, off-color cards, you can also just cast off-color morphs face down since there's no colored mana requirement. And with Ixidor, uh, you are provided with a means to turn any or any creature that is face down face up. Um, So rather than incentivizing sort of the cheap interactive morphs you might see in a Animar Soul of Elements or in a Kadena Slinking Sorcerer list, you're incentivized to run morphs that have unmorph costs that would be uh, discounted by this three mana activated ability on Ixidor himself. Yes. No, actually, that is one of the things as someone who had an Ixidor list a long time ago, like Ixidor really suffers from uh, a lot of the big cool things, a lot of the effects you really want to cheat with Ixidor with his like turn face up ability were not in mono blue. (laughs) They were in other colors and Ixidor was kind of meant to play nicely with them. Uh, And just because of the commander rules as they are, like you miss out on a lot of like cool tech that it seems like the designers had planned for you. So it would be really cool to see that list like operating at a hundred percent. Yeah, I see I see a few commanders in uh especially older ones that it kind of predate uh R&D's consciousness of commander. So in particular something like Kentaro the Smiling Cat, which allows you to pay uh generic mana instead of the uh normal casting cost for your samurai. You know, when they printed Kentaro, they had no idea that there was going to be a format where you would only be able to put white samurai in that deck to then use generic mana to cast. And so it, it allows these older designs that weren't so like color conscientious uh, to get a little bit of a boost. Which is great. They're not going to go back and fix, like make new versions of all of these old monocolor commanders from Kamigawa or, or pre like M10, you know, like, that's just not going to happen. So a lot of these lists are just going to, they're just going to sit there and kind of wilt away over time. I think this is a really interesting look at something that could be done, not saying that it should be done. This is all, I just want to reiterate, this is all hypotheticals. And it's really interesting to look at this to see like how the format is and how the format could be. But it, there's just a lot of interesting tech that happens. And I think it does change things. Uh, We'll get to like for the better or for the worse at the end, I guess. But I, I do think it does open up space for a lot of these old commanders that weren't really uh, taken into account by R&D in regards to the format and I think suffer under the current rules. I'd like to highlight a newer commander that would benefit from this rules change. So Gavi Nestwarden was released in the C20 precons. 
and she's a cycling commander. The The most relevant ability is you may pay zero rather than pay the cycling cost of the first card you cycle each turn. So many of your cycling cards are interchangeable, but the very best ones are the ones which have triggers when you cycle that you can get potentially a little bit of extra value rather than just kind of spinning your wheels and going through and cycling through your deck. So by changing the color identity rules, Gavi is going to get access to the to cards from other colors that have these cycling triggers. And one of the most powerful is the resounding cycle from Shards of Alara. So the resounding cycle all have, they're all a small effect on an instant or sorcery. They have a cycling cost that's five and then uh, CDE. So eight mana total of which three are different colors. And then they have a larger effect when you cycle it. So for example, resounding silence is three and a white for an instant remove target attacking creature from the game, cycling for five green, white, blue. And when you cycle it, remove up to or exile up to two target attacking creatures. If you you're able to put these in your deck, get a lot more value off of them. You don't really have to worry about generating the mana in order to pay that cost, but you you get the huge benefit from doing so when you cast when you cycle it for free using Gavi's ability. So that's a a very powerful cycle, and there's a few other effects from the many sets in which cycling was printed that are good to include. There are also a lot of decks that just sort of receive minor quality of life improvements. So a good example of this would be uh, Darien, King of Kildor. So Darien has an ability where whenever you are dealt damage, um, you create that many uh, 1-1 soldier tokens. And so you, by having access to off-color lands you can run the pain lands, so the lands that can produce colorless or can produce a color by taking damage. Um, And also, uh, you can run talismans, and you can damage yourself with those. So most Darien lists that are out there will, you know, gladly run Ancient Tomb. So most Darien lists will happily run their Ancient Tomb, um, take their two, get their two soldiers, but the option to also run, you know, uh, four more lands and potentially 10 more artifacts that can all damage you to make uh, creatures on demand is a really great quality of life improvement for a commander that might otherwise have a little bit of a harder time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Darien was one of the ones I was going to bring up to just because there is tech for Darien now, but I think Darien would have cost less mana if he was printed more recently. And... Uh, you get so many more options when you, like you said, like allow talismans or anything like that. Like there's just so many things that maybe are like just slightly off color or are hybrid or whatever that Darian could really make use of that uh, currently he can't in his own list. Uh, we've mentioned this sort of subcategory of decks before um, when we were talking about change to the hybrid rules, but it, it still holds true under the proposed change we've been talking about today. Uh, Grumgully, Malira, Renata, and Micaeus the Unhallowed all have the potential to combo off when you combine them with a sacrifice outlet and a creature with persist. They all either uh, prevent that minus one minus one counter from being placed or add a plus a plus one counter that'll cancel it out. So 
they're able to make it so that you can infinitely sacrifice this persist creature and then generate infinite of whatever your sac outlet produces. So all of them um, are able to make use of hybrid persist creatures. And then depending on uh, whether you're able to, to cheat in some way, you can potentially run off color persist creatures. So that's a another category of deck that would really benefit from this rules change. Yeah, and in that same vein, you also uh, would probably see some Luminous Broodmoth combos in mono-white since you get access to things like um, Kitchen Finks, uh, which normally you would need your deck to be both green and white to combo with Kitchen Finks and Luminous Broodmoth, but not so if you can produce white mana and cast it, no problem. Uh, All right, any other miscellaneous commanders that you'd like to talk about before we move on to another category of decks? I guess only for maybe the uh, historical edification of uh, some listeners that are newer to the format. Uh, Zedri would get back the Celestial Dawn combo. Oh, nice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that is, so that is true. Celestial Dawn uh, makes all of your lands planes, but allows you to use white mana as though or mana of any color. If you donate that to someone whose commander is not white, under the old uh, mana production rules, they would only be able to produce colorless mana with their lands, which are all now planes. And again, actually, uh, with this rules change, it would be even worse since they wouldn't even be able to make colorless mana. Their lands would just not make mana at all if their commander wasn't white. All right, I love it. I'm all for Zedru getting a little bit of boost in power. (laughs) Okay, uh, well, the next category of decks we're going to be talking about is decks that suffer from this rules change, decks that aren't really able to function quite as well under the, the new paradigm. So what are what are some of the types of decks that are likely to suffer after this change? So I've identified, I, I guess it's two categories. Um, so the first is decks that steal or clone, kind of a related concept, but essentially just playing with cards that aren't yours. Um, if you are copying your opponent's cards and their cards have colored activations that aren't in your color identity, you can't use them. Uh, so it's a fairly marginal decrease in utility. And again, this was something that decks that relied on like stealing and cloning worried about even back in the day, um, since, you know, you, if you're cloning deck was mono blue, you weren't going to be able to activate red activations. People just kind of lived with it. I don't imagine that that would be any different. Um, The second category is a bit more severe, arguably. Um, Colorless decks, so Eldrazi Titans, Hope of Giraper, Karn Silver Golem, uh, they, since their commander has no color, if you produce colored mana of any color, you would produce no mana instead. So what that would mean is a card like Gilded Lotus, which is currently usable, legal, in a Ulamog list, would still be legal uh, after this change. But if you attempted to tap your Gilded Lotus for mana, no matter what color you picked, you wouldn't add mana to your mana pool. Um, So you would presumably cut it. Uh, but in doing so, you would lose, you know, one of your higher end rocks. Whoops. <laughs> yeah, not, there's there's not a ton to say about it other than I guess that it it happens. So it sounds like uh, 
the the number of decks that are losing out from this change is relatively small and the the handicap they're getting is relatively minor compared to the large boosts in power we're seeing across many decks as a result of this change. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, so I imagine you'll have you know the list we kind of came up with, um, but it's somewhere in the neighborhood of about three times as many decks are going to see a benefit that we could identify uh, compared to decks that are going to suffer. And, and like you point out, the loss is A, not alien to the format for the most part, um, and B, not that big. It definitely seems to be like after looking at all of this, that that just is the case, that there just is a, a lot more benefit than negative to it. Yeah, there is one kind of an interesting, uh, I, I guess, for fun, I, I'll bring up Halden and Paco, the new uh, partners yeah c2020 so they both benefit and suffer uh from this change since you can use halden's ability to cast cards that are not in your deck's color uh that were in your deck so say paco attacks and you exile a black non-creature you could cast it with halden but if you cast your own card that has an off-color activated ability or your opponent's card that has an activated ability, you might not be able to activate it. So you kind of gain some and you kind of lose some. So it's kind of an interesting corner case there. Yeah, that is fascinating. All right, I think we can move on to uh, looking at some cards in general, pulling away from commanders and just talking about the the tools that are going to be available to more decks as a result of this change. So we'll start by talking about combos that are enabled by this change. What are some of the, the best combo engines and how are they going to be affected by this change? The cards you're going to want to look out for are cards that are acting in some axis similar to like the tutoring commanders. So cards like Academy Rector, where... Uh, it has a die trigger that allows you to tutor for an enchantment and place it on the battlefield. Tooth and Nail, where you can tutor creatures and then put creatures from your hand onto the battlefield. Protean Hulk, which famously allows you to tutor up a combination of creatures to combo off. And then there's the aforementioned uh, Hermit Druid combo, which would be available to any deck that could activate the Hermit Druid. Um, which is any green deck, since you can run your Thassa's Oracle and Dread Return, and neither of those cards will need to be cast for mana at all. So for for the examples of, say, like Tooth and Nail, uh, what are some of the the best combos that you would get access to in your, say, mono green deck or, or another deck with a restrictive color identity? Well, it's probably going to be the sort of thing that you're already pretty familiar with, right? So if you are in a mono green deck, you could conceivably tutor up your Machaeus the Unhollowed and Triskelion and do the Mike and Trike combo that you would see a green-black deck tooth and nailing for under the current rules. Or if you prefer, you could tooth and nail for a Kikijiki and a Pestermite, which, again is already something that you can tooth and nail for in your green, red, blue decks. So it wouldn't be anything totally new. It would just be different decks doing it. And I guess the thing to bear in mind here is 
with tooth and nail, you kind of have the benefit of uh, tooth and nail searches for two creatures and then places two creatures on the battlefield. So if a creature is already in your hand, tooth and nail can make that work. But for sort of similar uh, alternatives like Protean Hulk, Protean Hulk only can search your library for the creatures. So if you've drawn any of them, you would probably want some kind of a plan B in place so that you are able to still do the combo even though you drew a card that you're unable to play in a in a more conventional way. I think there's but, I think uh body snatcher might be the typical uh answer for that kind of situation. Yeah, and there and there are well explored lines for Protean Hulk especially um, but tooth and nail uh, cards of that sort of vein. Um, Academy Rector in particular could go get you an Omniscience, and Omniscience then could let you cast cards of any color. But you know, it could. Again, these are all things that can happen. They can just only happen in decks with a less restrictive color identity. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple that I think might be really impactful um, are scapeshift and hour of promise one of the interesting things about um opening up this line is for example with scapeshift that uh any deck could pretty easily run like red x duels and uh without a whole lot of cost to their mana base and then you can just easily search out velikut and a whole bunch of duels and then dome your opponent for however much damage yeah, that's absolutely true. Uh, and obviously, the more colors your deck is, the better you'll be able to do that, right? Since uh, you got your your dual lands, your shock lands, and then uh, ally color pairs have a few more, and now there are the triumphs as well. But yeah, conceivably, you could scapeshift into a Valakut and enough mountains that you could burn probably one person out or multiple players if it's late enough in the game. The thing to watch out for, I suppose, is that uh, at minimum, that's going to require you to run Valakut, which if your deck isn't red, you're not going to be able to produce mana with it. So it goes again to that plan B utility problem. But you could work around it with something like Urborg. I think that's more of like a combo list problem just in general, like uh, like a deck building constraint that combo typically ends up running into. Like, oh no, like you got rid of plan A. Like, how do I... Where do I go from here? <laughs> yeah, I think it's just yeah. going to be a common problem that a lot of decks are running these dead cards that aren't castable. Like, for example, the Thassa's Oracle in the um, in the Yisan deck. One type of deck that might be able to benefit is decks that are able to to discard for value. I can see red decks potentially getting uh, or being less handicapped by these dead cards in their deck because they're able to filter through their cards pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it might also make, say, uh, a white deck that is just overflowing with cards from like a Weathered Wayfarer or a Land Tax. Uh, you know, they're not going to feel so bad if they discard a card that just is in the wrong zone anyway. But there are a fair number of cards that just kind of have the have the training wheels taken off and end up uh, being put into tons of decks. Um, maybe, maybe we should talk about some of those. Yes. Uh, yeah. Let's get into the general changes to deck building and how the how most decks in the format are going to handle this change. 
Yeah, we've talked about a lot of them already. There are a few that we have yet to touch on um, since we didn't put together any lists that use them. Um, first, the two CMC ramp spell uh, availability just explodes with the uh, availability of all 10 talismans to every color. Like all hybrid cards, um, companions are going to be more widely available. So it's been hard to find out, I guess, how popular companions are are uh, in the wider world of Commander, what with everything being shut down. But you'd certainly see more people trying to brew with them as, say, your Zerda deck, uh, your Zerda becomes available to a mono-red deck or a red-blue deck or something like that. And then finally, we didn't maybe spell this out terribly explicitly, but the Yisan deck points out that fetch lands, dual lands, and especially triomes all become much more desirable to play and own. Uh, duels allow you to get closer to that zero basic land count, which is helpful for Hermit Druid. Um, it also allows you to have a deck comp comprised entirely of cards of different names, which can matter for Tainted Pact, um, which is another well-known uh, competitive win condition. Um, and fetch lands that go find Triumphs uh, allow you to sort of subsidize your dual land uh, capacity in two color decks by, say, using a card that can go get a forest or planes, you can go get the green, red, blue triome in your red, blue deck. So a green fetch land became useful to you, even though the other part of that doesn't touch either of your basic land types. And that's kind of a, a mouthful to get around, but the short version is you'll see more triomes. Let's dive deeper into companions a bit. So companions, they uh, have been typically limited in, in Commander as it is currently because many of them, uh, the, their restriction applies to your Commander as well, and that greatly limits what you're able to play with. So for example, like Luris of the Dream Den currently only has two commanders that it can be used with because it requires all cards in your deck, including your commander, to have CMC two or less. Or rather, all permanent cards in your deck, including your commander, to have CMC two or less. So uh, I imagine that Luris would get significantly more options. Uh, what are some of the other companions that can open up and fit into more decks as a result of this proposed rules change. So as you point out, uh, Luris is going to be the one that gets the most. Um, it goes from 2 to about 30. Uh, but Imori the Collector, which requires all of the cards in your deck to be the same card type, uh, allows you to play around more with some of the more off-the-wall builds. Um, so... For example, you could uh, do an all planeswalker deck um, that doesn't use Lord Windgrace. Uh, you could use any black or green planeswalker commander, um, for better or worse. Uh, the ones that are generally uh, fairly easy to slot in, so uh, Gairuda, Obosh, um, and Karuga, those are all still going to be. Uh, broadly applicable, but 
again, by going from, say, in the case of Obosh, uh, requiring the deck to be red and black to red or black, you're going to have a lot more decks that are interested um, in maybe attempting to jump through the hoop. And then of all of them, the one that might be the most uh, broad in its application is going to be Gigantha the Wellspring. Its color identity is currently in its text box, right? So under the current rules, the fact that it's uh, white, blue, and black is purely because of its activated ability. So with Gigantha under this different rule, you could not only put it in any deck that is green or red, the fact that it has an activated ability that's off color doesn't prevent you from playing with it as your companion. Uh, so, you know, if you're willing to figure out what cards only feature a single uh, mana symbol of each type, you could conceivably put that into many, many different decks. Are there any uh, specific pairings that you're really interested in, in testing out or that have a really significant impact on the gameplay of a commander? So the one I think that maybe everyone would have thought of first is Yannette, Cryptic Sovereign, and Abosh, the Prey Piercer. So Yannette, Cryptic Sovereign, is uh, two black, blue, white for a uh, three, five Sphinx with flying, vigilance, and menace. And then whenever Yannette Cryptic Sovereign attacks, you reveal the top card of your library. If the converted mana cost is odd, you may cast it without paying its mana cost. Otherwise, you draw a card. So that is an odd CMC Matters deck. Abosh the Prey Piercer is three red or black, red or black for a three, five Helian Horror. With Companion, your starting deck contains only cards with odd converted mana costs and land cards. And then if a source you control with an odd converted mana cost would deal damage to a permanent or player, it deals double that damage to that permanent or player instead. So again, odds matters. Yannette cannot currently run Albosh as a Companion because Albosh is red and Yannette is not. But Yannette is black and using only black mana, you could cast uh, Obosh. So what that means is you are being asked by your commander to run cards with odd CMC, and then uh, told by your companion that you're going to be able to double the damage output of those cards, which seems like a win to me. Yeah. Yeah, seems very powerful. Another use of Obosh that I really like is... Heartless Hidetsugu with Obosh as a companion. Yeah. So, and uh, as you pointed out in your preview episode, uh, oh, Heartless Hidetsugu is one of the best cards in Obosh, but it'd be great to have it the other way around too. Yeah, I definitely agree. And for a little bit of a, a different take, I actually took some inspiration from uh, another one of the decks that you guys have put together, Lizolda the Blood Witch red black commander that uh works or is decently well situated to work well with zerda the dawn waker um so lizolda is a, a three one human cleric for one black red and she has two sacrifice a creature lizolda deals two to any target if the sacrificed creature was red draw a card if the sacrificed creature was black so she has an activated ability, which means that 
she herself at least is Zerda compatible, then the puzzle becomes, can you put together uh, the rest of a deck where every permanent in the deck has an activated ability? And working fairly closely, actually, from a list you guys had, uh, I was able to determine that the answer is yes. Um, you mm-hmm. get cards like Reassembling Skeleton, um, which has an activated ability that you can activate from your graveyard, uh, Blood Soaked Champion, you get um, Siege Gang Commander and Siege Gang Sling Gang Lieutenant, uh, which can give you red goblin tokens to ping creatures, the various equipments that you use to give Lazolda Death Touch have their costs uh, reduced and their equip costs satisfies Zerda's requirement. And you can use uh, card advantage engines like Mind Slash and Attrition and Necropotence just as well with the hoop Zerda imposes as you could in a list without it. Fantastic. I really love that use. So it sounds like uh, the companions really get a lot of juice from this. Their impact on the format is going to be felt a little bit more widely for better or for worse. Um, What's another category of cards that are going to see more play as a result of this change? One can view the companions as a kind of subset of hybrid cards generally, right? So uh, just as much as Zerda is going to enjoy having access to more decks, really any hybrid card uh, will benefit from seeing wider adoptability. Uh, the question then becomes, you know, is is it too broad of applicability? And there are a handful of hybrid cards that maybe are approaching that territory. Um, the the biggest example would be Deathrite Shaman. So green has tons of one mana uh, creatures that can generate mana, but it is more than happy to have more. And black has none. So your black deck is really going to like having a, a one mana ramp spell especially if you are looking to do something specific on turn three, as you are in, say, Lizolda, in order to cast her or Zerda. Other examples of hybrid cards that will probably be pretty popular, uh, Fiend Artisan, um, the new green-black hybrid creature that allows you to sacrifice creatures to tutor for other creatures. It's going to allow you to... Tutor for creatures in green and tutor for creatures in black, uh, which, uh, again, uh, Fiend Artisan, also very useful in the Lazolda list that I was just mentioning, since it mm-hmm. allows you to find specific recurrables or things that produce lots of black tokens or things that produce lots of uh, red tokens on demand. Yeah, I'm really salivating over the idea of running Fiend Artisan in my mono black lists. That's such a useful ability, both as a way to convert the the colors prominent sack fodder into cards, but also a way to just uh, you know reduce variance, make sure you're seeing your your most powerful creatures more often. So that seems like a really exciting change for me. Mm-hmm. And then we also mentioned Vexing Shusher earlier when we were talking about Yison. 
giving vexing Fisher to mono red decks uh, could have implications for decks like Goto Bandit Warlord, which is famously a very single-minded combo deck. Um, being able to prevent your opponent from keeping you off your combo is going to be uh, a big win. There is some reason to pause and have a conversation about Beseech the Queen. Mm-hmm. So Beseech the Queen is a sorcery. Uh, it's part of a cycle of cards that are two or a color three times. So Beseech the Queen is two or black, two or black, two or black. And it allows you to search your library for a card with CMC uh, less than or equal to the number of lands you control. Conceivably, uh, there is the argument that Beseech the Queen giving any deck access to a tutor uh, would mean that Beseech the Queen would receive maybe not rampant adoption, but uh, more adoption than folks are comfortable with. Um, uh, I I would not agree with that, typically. I, I don't think it would see a ton of play. Um, I think that six mana is a huge amount, and you would really only consider running it if... Uh, if you weren't in green or black, if you likely weren't in blue, and if you um, were really, really focused on assembling some sort of combo. So to me, that I, I could think of like Zerd of the Dawn Waker might be interested in it because that deck is so focused on assembling the infinite mana combo. And then once you do, you know, six CMC tutor to get your actual win condition is nothing for you. Um, what are your thoughts on the adoption of Beseech the Queen? I'm in the same camp. I, I don't think that six mana is the sort of tiny investment that uh, it might seem at first at first blush. When yeah. you're tutoring for six, you have lands that can tutor uh, at a lesser uh, cost. So things like Inventor's Fair... You have artifacts that can tutor repeatedly. Um, Planar Portal, which obviously has the front-end investment, but offers sort of the promise of repeated use. Uh, You have things like the lands that can tutor for Eldrazi, um, Eye of Ugin, things of that nature. So, you know, those are more limited, or at least some of them are, uh, or require a bit more of a front-end investment, but those cards aren't you know, tearing apart the format as it is with Planar Portal being kind of the closest analogy. So I, I wouldn't I wouldn't lose sleep over Beseech the Queen seeing a, an uptick in play. Until we start seeing like a critical mass in tutors, in colorless decks, in white decks, in red decks, it's just not going to matter that much if you have like a 1% increase, especially when the rate is so bad. Yeah, and there's also the question sort of philosophically to have, do we do we care that a color other than black or that every color other than black is getting one more tutor? One might consider that a good thing rather than a bad one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there's room to disagree for sure. There are three cards that I kind of made note of just because they are removal. And um, if you look at lists of staples on things like EDH rec, uh, you're going to see... Mana Rocks uh, as one of the two categories, and then just Removal as the second sort of card that receives broad adoption. Um, the three hybrid cards that are in that camp would be Unbake, 
nature's chant and sundering growth. So nature's or uh, unmake is spot removal for a creature. It exiles a creature, and then nature's chant and sundering growth uh, destroy artifacts or enchantments. The thing that's noteworthy about them is that currently you need to be in a black and white deck to run unmake or a green and white deck to run nature's chant or sundering growth and that would change presumably that would make them staples in the same kind of way that like naturalize is a staple yeah i would love to see more options for white disenchants and uh to open up that that opportunity for white decks to be able to respond at instant speed for an efficient price to artifact enchantments is really exciting to me. Nature's Chant in particular really illustrates the point that uh, designers like Mark Rosewater have made where hybrid cards are intended to be or. And Nature's Chant, when it was printed, really was a second disenchant. It just hasn't been a second disenchant for Commander because of its color identity. Related to hybrid mana and I guess what you would call like two brid mana, there's Phyrexian mana which gives us such cards as Birthing Pod, Dismember, Gitaxian Probe, Mental Misstep, which we've all discussed. We've discussed all of those before. But there are a few other Phyrexian mana cards that are noteworthy, uh, and also probably more to say about uh, the Phyrexian mana cards that I just listed. Yeah, I'm very excited to run a Birthing Pod in more decks. I think that that would be a fantastic tool for as an additional sack outlets, sack outlet for the decks that are interested in that, as an additional tutor for decks that need it. I can see a lot of lists that would very happily take this on, especially in color identities that don't have access to a lot of tutoring. I did some research as well into those kinds of uh, color identities that don't have as much tutoring. So I see Birthing Pod as a fairly narrow tutor. Um, you have one creature on board and a fairly limited universe of creatures that you can pod that into. So if you look at things like uh, Goblin Matron, which is a red creature that tutors goblins, Ranger Captain of Eos, which is a white creature that tutors for one CMC creatures, uh, Recruiter of the Guard and Imperial Recruiter, which search for uh, low toughness and low power creatures, respectively. Um, all of those see about 5% uh, adoption, a little less uh, for some of them. I don't imagine Birthing Pod would overrun the format, but you know, it's it's been a force in Legacy and Vintage and Modern uh, whenever it's been legal in those formats. So, you know, I'd be prepared to be incorrect about that. Yeah, I, I just see it as such a strong tool uh, for decks that are really looking to combo off. Um, like, this is not only a tutor, but it's a repeatable tutor. It'll help you assemble two-card combos. Like, if you have, say, a four CMC red commander or something, or or even just a, a, anything lower than five, you could cast it, like, try to climb the chain to get to one half of, like, the Kiki cheeky zealous conscripts combo and cast it again and climb the chain again um i mean that's a slow line but because we're we're loosening these color identity restrictions you can also find more efficient combos like maybe your deck just has a bunch of uh cheap creatures and you are looking to assemble say like 
Devoted Druid and Vizier of Remedies. There's just a lot of uh, a lot of combo potential that this would unlock because it's multiple tutors in one. Yeah, I can't argue with that assessment. That sounds spot on. Um, the The fact that it makes the Kiki combos a little more equal opportunity. Uh, so the most common vector isn't just Tooth and Nail or Defense of the Heart. Feels good. I mean, like I, I ran Birthing Pod in the Alesha deck that we talked about right near the top of the episode. Um, and it definitely, like you said, helped find the combo you're looking for. So another Phyrexian mana card that met was also mentioned earlier, but I'm excited to run would be Dismember. Uh, so as I stated earlier, it gives pretty unconditional removal to Mono Red, which doesn't have a lot of good options for spot creature removal. Same for Mono Green. Mono Blue also is like a little light once you get past uh, Pongify, Rapid Hybridization, Reality Shift. So there's a lot of decks that don't quite have a critical mass of good spot removal, good instant speed, efficient spot removal for creatures. And I think that Dismember would see a lot of adoption. Do you want to hit anything else really quickly before we do the, the kind of wrap up? Yeah, maybe Noxious Revival. Noxious Revival, I think, has the potential to be a big player oddly which is the point i would make about it mm-hmm. yeah i agree <laughs> yeah um so one more phyrexian mana card that sort of counterintuitively uh seems like it's going to cause a big change in the format is noxious revival uh so noxious revival is a single green phyrexian mana a target player puts target card from their graveyard on top of their library. It's going to be well known to anyone who plays CEDH. It allows you to recur combo pieces and allows you to put something like a fetch land on top of a slow tutor like Vampiric Tutor. It's not super widely adopted now, but I could imagine that changing for colors that are light on recursion that are looking to recur combo pieces and uh, have that kind of disruption in their back pocket as well for the corner case. I like that usage a lot. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. This is a lot of information. It's a very big change, I would say, to like what the format is doing. What are what's kind of like the wrap up here? Like what would we would we say that like the format is more diverse if this change were to be implemented? I guess it, it kind of depends on how Good you night. frame diverse, right? So like we said earlier, uh, basically any deck that was legal before is going to be legal now. I mean, any deck that was legal before is going to be legal now. There might just be, if you're playing a colorless deck, a few cards that you ought to cut. Um, but aside from that, kind of what ends up happening is you get some features that are true of legacy but have never really been true of commander that get ported into commander a little more so reanimator show and tell uh, birthing pod those are all things that have been relevant players in eternal formats other than commander forever but just aren't in commander in that same way um as we discussed, there's kind of this give and take of like, do you want to force your deck to play this A then B kind of hoop jumping game? Or do you just want to play it safe and be able to cast all of your cards on the off chance that something goes wrong? 
And I mean, I guess on a very anecdotal level, it just seems hard to see what comes out of this that wasn't already happening. Um, it yes. just is happening in different decks. Mm-hmm. It's just, yeah, it's just happening in different ways. And I, I suppose the, the other point, right, is in some sense, every time you make five color whisper as opposed to one color whisper, you've just doubled the number of whisper archetypes. So if you're counting by that metric, the format has become more diverse with regards to those archetypes. It's, I guess it's just hard to say with diversity being this amorphous concept that's hard to kind of pin down. Yeah, it's, it's difficult to balance um, diversity and viability. Typically, when I think about diversity, I think of I think of it as the number of viable decks in the format, the number of decks that you can bring to a table and not get completely stomped. So there are some commanders out there that are unfortunately not viable. It's just difficult to build them in such a way that you can. Uh, I mean, unless you're just running them as a figurehead commander of a good stuff deck. There's a lot of commanders out there that if you try to build around them, it's just not going to work for you in commander. I, I understand that although this change is going to increase the power level of a lot of different archetypes, such as Whisper, such as these reanimator or show and tell archetypes. And for some of them, that may make the difference between like whether they're viable or not. But it's also kind of like a, a rising tide lifts all boats. And it might be that the competitive end of the format gets so many new tools as a result of this change that uh, decks that were once viable that maybe don't get a whole lot of benefit from this change are could also like slip into obscurity because everyone else is able to more effectively make use of, well, now I have like more options for my mana with these fetches and duels and... Uh, I can make use of off-color Phyrexian cards or hybrid cards. or I think there's going to be both winners and losers in this. And it's hard to get a sense of like what the, the average power level will be like following this change. And to circle us back to kind of what precipitated this entire analysis in the first place, the, when the Rules Committee states that they feel that relaxing the hybrid rule would decrease deck diversity. What sort of they must mean by that is that they see certain cards as being more widely adopted, right? Yeah, no, that's definitely what I think. Yeah. What would probably need to happen is we would just need a really competitive mindset to hash out for us, you know, is dismember good in too many decks? And, and, you know, just looking at the cards, it's, it's hard to make that call. You can compare to analogies all you want. You can point out that, you know, Swords to Plowshares is in over 50% of white decks, and Dismember, like, might see that much play in other decks, but Dismember hardly sees play in any black decks. And, you know, around and around you go, but without taking the wheels off, like you said, it's, it's just hard to know. Mm-hmm. So I would say for my two cents, the bottom line is 
using the definition that you guys subscribe to and kind of the one that I prefer to use as well, you, you end up with more, more decks, but maybe fewer cards going into those more decks. Maybe. Yeah, I, I definitely like the idea that Reanimator can more closely resemble what it looks like in other formats. Because that that has a lot of nostalgia for a lot of folks. Um, it's not currently possible under the current rules. And there's a lot of big boom booms that aren't that may not have a deck that fit into currently. And so it could provide more um, more platforms for cards like Jin Gitaxius that, you know, it'll see play in Jalira, it'll see play in Braids. But other than that, Blue doesn't really have the resources to make use of that kind of card. I agree yeah. wholeheartedly. Oh, there, there is one last question I want to ask you. Oh, sure. How do you think this change would affect color balance? What deficiencies do colors have that this might help address? Since a lot of this comes down to specific cards, there, there are things that we have sort of already talked about. So, for example, Beseech the Queen is one more tutor in white or red. Uh, you have access to removal with Dismember that other colors don't necessarily have. Um, you have access to free interaction for non-blue decks with the uh, new cycle of free spells. So, I mean, I guess every color gets a little bit of everything, right? Ultimately, what this is going to do is give things, give decks access to effects outside of their color pie. And in so doing, you, you know, level, level the playing field all around the insofar as you know colors other than white and black can't kill things efficiently you give the other colors uh, a boost with that and and so on I, I don't know if that really addresses your question it's you know it's a kind of at the heart of the the issue i suppose i mean currently there, there definitely is a difference in between the the current world and this hypothetical world in terms of color balance you're you're right that most colors like everyone gets a little bit more access to everything, but because different mechanics matter more in Commander, I think that the colors that don't have access to the mechanics that matter, the ones that like build up your resources or efficiently answer threats, I think that it would help out, say, white and red more. Because, like, you know, part of the same cycle as uh, Beseech the Queen was Flame Javelin. But nobody's clamoring to play Flame Javelin in Commander because direct damage just doesn't matter as a mechanic. Um, and in that in that same vein, I see the uh, talismans being a big change to the format as in that same wheelhouse. Right? It it allows colors other than green to run a critical mass of two mana ramp spells if that's what they want to do. You know, any deck can do that now, which makes it so that you don't see the supremacy of such an important resource exactly kind of in the hands of a single color mm -hmm. yeah so I, I think it would be great for white and red yeah free counter spells and ramp are super important and red and white don't have them so all right well we really appreciate you uh uh bringing this idea up with us and coming on the show to discuss it further i think this is um, been some really great analysis. Uh, it's been a fascinating thought experiment and we really appreciate you coming on the show. 
Yeah, of course. Thank you very much for having me. It, as always, uh, is a pleasure to talk to you guys and work with you guys and come up with, you know, brews for the format as it is and as it could be. Yeah. Where can our listeners uh, see some more of your analysis of the Commander format? Absolutely. So the listeners uh, can find me at commandermanifesto.tumblr.com. And that is, well, aside from Tumblr, T-U-M-B-L-R, spelled exactly like it sounds. Great. Well, uh, I'm sure folks who are interested in the episode in the content of today's episode can find a lot more on your blog to to tickle their fancy and uh, excite their intellect well yeah, and if anyone wants to do some experiments with this hypothetical and send them my way i'd love to hear more absolutely mm-hmm. all right well that's all the time we have for today thanks again for joining us and thank you all for listening If any of you theorists want to get in touch with us, I am at Commander Theory on Twitter and Tumblr, and Zach is at Fat Bartleby on Twitter. Our theme song is Lincoln Continental by Entropy, and you can check him out on SoundCloud. Until next time, we're going back to the drawing board.